This is an ABC podcast. Why don't you Google cock rings no. and how they work? I think that'll I'm help you out. I'm at the ABC. Out. They'll knock me off the internet <laughs> if I do that. Surprised if we have a podcast after this. <laughs> On. Hello, Zan. G'day, g'day. How are you going? I'm sorry. Good. Are you all right? I feel like I need to burp. I'm so sorry, everyone. It just came on right as I was about to start. As I press play, you just like. <laughs> sorry. It's all right. It, it happens. It's gone away now. Oh, good. I was hoping for a big belch. Yeah, I know. Big bang on belch. Yeah. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. But no, it, it went away. Well, for some people, I don't know if <laughs> I don't many know if of the bang fam who are ready for their capture of music, art, life, and stuff would just be ready for a burp. I think they're ready for anything. I think that's what I like about the Bang On audience. Everyone that listens is one of us and we're ready for anything. It's so true. There's actually some beautiful reviews that have popped through and a couple of emails. We're going to get into the Bang Box later on because people continue to ask questions. Oh, I love this. And we're going to continue to try and answer them. Try. I think just try. Not There's no actual advice um, or fact yeah. involved. <laughs> But we'll have a chat. Legitimate. So legitimate yeah. questions. Exactly. How last, are you? Well, I was going to say, last time I saw you, I'm um, mm. well. Um, it was the kickoff day of the Melbourne International Film Festival, better known as Myth. Mm. And Myth was hosting Myth. <laughs> yes, I have seen perfect. the opening night. You did make the joke. Did you hear me hoot and holler? I was I did. and holler and I was I like, did. yay! I did it. I did and I and I heard you and I heard a lot of love in the room. It was great. Um, it was, yeah, it was just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. That was my one joke. That's all I needed to do. They didn't want me to do much else other than just swiftly introduce all the people because speeches at an opening film night are, are often, you know, sometimes the process can be a little long and, mm. and I think, you know, there's a lot of thank yous to do and people want to see the film too and they know they've got two hours beyond it so you've got to keep it short and sharp and yep. that was my job. And You did a great yeah, job. I had a great time. Had yeah. a lovely time. It was a beautiful film too and interestingly the filmmakers did keep it short because they you could tell they were big myth and film festival oh, fans. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the film was of an age. I think it's going to get a broad release and it's actually got a heap of um, screenings if you're anywhere in Victoria because myth goes beyond Melbourne City. It's yeah, I saw everywhere. that. They're in Mildura where I grew up, yeah. the Bendigo, Ballarat, all regional towns. Look it up and I think it's this weekend that it's actually screening if you're listening early. Fantastic. Get in there. Beautiful film, coming of age film in um, the outer Melbourne suburbs of two queer guys, one of whom is just kind of figuring out his identity um, and just wonderful to watch. And yeah, the the filmmaker was kind of like, I've been to these things. I know you just want to watch the film. Thanks, thanks, thanks. I'm not going to mention names. Enjoy. I love that. I love you. This is perfect. Yeah, perfect. No, it was was a great week. Very exciting week. What did you get up to other than that? I went under for the first time. Under what does that mean? You went uh, and back in the room hypnotherapy. I've had hypnotherapy. We can talk about that, but no, not quite. No, what was it? Um, I had a general anaesthetic for the first time in my life, which I think that at my age is pretty damn lucky. I've Absolutely. never broken a bone, have to have any sort of major procedure. I've kept pretty good health, but I have had this kind of niggling feeling of something being stuck in the back mm. of my throat, and my GP was like, "It's probably just acid reflux." You're old now. Uh, but I was like, I'm get worried. Changes. My turn and face the flux. Changes. I am, um, my voice is my my paycheck, you know. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I just want to double check it and rule it out. So I um, went for a day procedure into a hospital and got put under with the general anaesthetic mm. and got a camera shoved down my gullet. Oof. Um, and can I say, I was very nervous beforehand I because 
being put under is like it's a loss of control. You know me. Yeah, I know. I don't like to lose control. <laughs> but also, it's but you also like, love asleep. There's a reason that anesthesi- <laughs> I love asleep, but there's a reason that anesthesiologists get paid so much is because they hold your life in their hands. They do. And I was like, what if they give me too much and this is goodbye? I was telling Jeffy I loved him several times as he dropped Aww. me off. <laughs> like, if I never see you again, he was like, stop. He didn't realise I'd never been under a general and later that day he's like, oh, my God, no wonder you were nervous. I thought that Aww. you'd had them before. So it all went well. My insides look great. Oh, that's say. good. That's good. <laughs> Very healthy. Yeah. And I think I'm just old and have acid reflux. So shout outs to all the Bang fam who now, when you drink some wine, have some coffee, maybe some tomatoes, some bread, basically all the things that all you things enjoy you like. in life. Yeah. Um, and, and you suffer for them. I'm now one of you yeah, and it welcome. sucks. Welcome. It sucks. I've been here for a while, so welcome. <laughs> Always walking around with a quick ease. That's just <laughs> the rest of my life, really. God. What's Just happened to lots us? Lots of little surprises. I know. It was a very sad week in music oh. in Australia this week. I just wanted to... Can it get any worse? Yeah, pay tribute to a few legends, in fact, because the last week and a half has really dealt a blow to Australian music and, and particularly to musicians from Victoria. Olivia Newton-John died earlier this week. Yep. We got the news through on Tuesday. A massive outpouring of love for someone who didn't just bring joy with her music but through her huge work as an advocate for cancer patients, yep. literally setting up foundations and cancer treatment centres. Seems like from all accounts would spend time with people um, in these centres and just people in general who needed a lift and she yeah. was there to bring that joy. So it's really sad news that ONJ passed and it's the, the outpouring has continued for yeah. days around the world, hasn't it? Well, I think for a lot of lot of us who grew up in a certain period of time in Australia, to see what she could achieve and what she did achieve with her spirit and her magic intact, she always just seemed so full of life and joy. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. As a little kid, I mean, Xanadu was the first record I ever bought with my own money. So as a little kid, she was quite an inspiration. And seeing an Australian woman on screen on, in Greece with an Australian actor yeah, that was pretty rare in those days, and in fact, it's probably still quite rare. Um, and and that was a bit of an education in being a teenager too. So I think that's not just for our generation, for for many subsequently. So I feel like she's been part of that early, very formative understanding of of what's going to happen to us. Mm. And so you hold that really dear and really close. Mm. And and she was beautiful. She was a beautiful singer as well. And her songs were awesome. Like all that stuff on Xanadu, the film was shit, let's be honest. But the soundtrack with ELO and Jeff Lynne, amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And, yeah, and her voice, my goodness, it was pure. She never mucked around, never did the the vocal sort of, um, you know, roller coaster. There was never any of that. It was just pure and simple. She had a beautiful tone and I think we could all, we all connected to that. There was something very sort of older sisterly like about it or something it was just beautiful very calming I once got the opportunity to hear her voice isolated because after the Sound Relief concert, which is one of those big fundraising concerts, she was on stage with Barry Gibb Mm. and they were singing together and um, someone I work with had the job of mixing that concert down, which was a live concert, but for the DVD and CD release. And he was in the middle of doing it and I just went to the studio that he was in to ask him about something else and he was like, hey, just listen to this. And he just isolated her voice. Oh, my God. And it was flawless. It was just pitch perfect, flawless. Honey-soaked vocal. What you heard 
was what you got. Yeah. That was Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. And it was amazing to hear that and also amazing to remember that. I think there was a big generation of people who maybe didn't realise that she sold 100 million records. Mm. You know, she had this whole country pop career as well because her last 30 years or so has been very much in an advocate role mm. and working with this other side of her life. But she had a huge music career too. And to be reminded of that and to just see how many people's childhoods, regardless of whether you grew up in the 80s or not, Mm. she affected because Greece was a coming-of-age film. It was kind of that thing that everyone experienced, no matter how old you were, at a certain point in your young teens. It was just really beautiful to see what a huge effect she had and a huge effect she had on other artists, like Kylie Minogue's post, beautiful post, talking about how special she was. And let's not forget Koala Blue, the uh, store that she had in LA for many, many years. God, I did forget about Koala Blue. (laughs) Thank you for bringing Koala Blue back into my world. Taking Australian produce and Australian, Australian goods to the LA market when Australia was like really Getting it out there. 80s style, Kendone style. Yes. It was amazing. Australis perfume style. Oh, my God. Australis. Yeah. Well, she was sort of at the <laughs> forefront of that as well. So there's been a lot of giving back Yeah. from Olivia. And she was an advocate for uh, a lot of alternative therapies, some of which aren't legal here in this country. And she knew that that would damage her brand, and but she also knew that how much it helped her and her own cancer treatment. And she was prepared to do that for others yeah. here in Australia because she knew that this was an important thing to do. So what a woman, really. And another woman who took Australia to the world out the front of the Seekers, Judith Durham, also died after a long illness. Um, You know, again, two women that we knew were unwell, but it was still very sad and, and shocked to hear that she'd passed away. That This was a period, like, take it back another 10, 15 mm. years, where... The idea of being played on radio outside of Australia was just so foreign. This was the 60s, you know, 1967, when the Seekers are having this huge hit with Georgie Girl and and the songs that followed. Mm. And Judith Durham, again, so many people just talking about what a salt-of-the-earth human she was, how she had time for everyone, and just such a generous spirit. And again, with an incredibly beautiful and sweet voice. Like, Mm. these were the voices that introduced... Australia to the world and, and, and said, hey, this is what's going on in our backyard. Quite phenomenal. Yeah. A very sad loss, definitely. And she had been ill for quite some time, but it doesn't doesn't mean it's any easier, I mm. think, because there aren't that many trailblazing women in music. There, yeah. there, there really aren't. And I think that's something I've noticed a lot of late. And when you lose them, it does, it does feel like that, that period of time is, yeah, we, we're going to miss them essentially from the landscape too in terms of what they contribute and, and, and I guess the role that they played as trailblazers for all of us. But they do leave a legacy and there's so many women and, and, and other artists who, who have taken on you know the, what they've seen as little kids and gone, okay, I can do this, I can mm. be there, I can be up on that stage. Someone who gave voice to so many other people through his songs also left us in the last week and a half, Archie Roach, another Victorian, incredible yeah. musician, amazing storyteller, a truth teller who really just changed the conversation with his debut record, Charcoal Lane. It's hard to wrap the life of Archie Roach and I think that there are many other people who have done it way better than I'm even going to attempt to do, but I just feel so grateful to have lived in the time of Archie, to have seen him live. And one of the most beautiful people to talk to just and gorgeous. interview. And he was, in the last few years, the, the few times I'd spoken to him, he was struggling, you know. He was on oxygen predominantly. Mm. Um, he wasn't well, but he always made time. He always 
showed up and he was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful, around the time of the release of his book, Tell Me Why, which again is, is, is I think it's an essential read. Every mm. person in Australia should read that book because it's it's about the stolen generations and of which he was a member. And when you read from his perspective, you can understand the cruelty and the intergenerational trauma and all of those things. It, it It's absolutely absolutely real and brutal and he just wrote so beautifully about it um yeah I reckon that that book should be on the curriculum he was incredible he dedicated his life to education he's I spoke to him about a year and a half ago um when he was making you know revisiting charcoal lane and and doing new recordings of it around his kitchen table which is where he always wrote and he said, you know, I, I share my story so that others can share their story too. And he really did. Like he, he revisited some incredibly traumatic yeah. parts of his life, many different periods of his life that were very hard and that not many people would actively go back and visit. But he did that because he knew that in sharing that, other people would feel safe to share their story. And the more people that share, you don't just get it off your chest, but you change the way that we talk about and live together and work together and exist together, you change the conversation. Mm. And he dedicated his life to that through his music, through his biography, through his children's book, through YouTube videos talking about his songs. He never stopped. He always turned up. So thank you, Archie Roach, for everything. Um, It is such a loss, but Mm. you leave such a legacy. Absolutely. If you shared an interesting piece with me this mm. week off the back of Malcolm Gladwell, very well-known author, speaking on a podcast called Diary of a CEO. Now, for anybody who doesn't know Malcolm Gladwell before we get into this, he's the author of a couple of books. He's kind of a, a thinker, a futurist. Yeah, a futurist. He, a, you know, he's a trend forecaster, I guess. The tipping point was the book that broke it for him and that was all about what makes something go from being, I guess, a, a, a cult interest or has small audience base to them be, having that tipping point and Blowing up globally. Oh, like bang on. Absolutely. Like this podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Global. He also did The Outliers, which was a great I book. I really that enjoyed that. What was that one about? It's kind of broadly, this is very much distilling it down to one sentence, but this idea that if you, um, outliers are people like, you know, captains of industry. Oh, yeah. Steve Jobs, other, you know, oh, geniuses. Okay. And if you if you do, if you work for 10,000 hours at anything, then you're a genius at it. Then you're really oh, good at it. Okay. So just give it a red hot go. The so Beatles. Just be a workaholic. Just work really hard and you'll <laughs> it'll pay off. That is a very, very simplistic definition of wow. the outliers. But he's rubbed a few people the wrong way oh. with what he's talked about in this podcast. What's he been going on about? Well, this week online, and it was distilled into an article that um, I found on the New York Post. That was getting shared more than the podcast. So the podcast is probably quite quite disturbed by the uh, I th- I lack think, of attention. I think that you sharing this with me gave me a lot of viruses on my computer too. Oh so my many freaking from the New York Post. <laughs> this is the thing about American websites. They are awful. Yeah. Awful. That's Stereo like, garments like freezes my computer, oh, the amount of pop-ups. Just not interested. I don't go there anymore. Anyway, <laughs> this article is Malcolm Gladwell slams working from home. What have you reduced your life to? Malcolm Gladwell, he who previously or many, many years ago said um, – And this was taken from something else that he's written. I hate desks. Desks are now banished. He starts the day writing at home, but this is always done from his sofa using his laptop. I work better when I'm comfortable, he says, after a stint on the sofa. It's out into the world. So he works from home. Mm. And here he is deciding that the world 
probably should get off their asses and go back to work and go into the office. And, of course, it was met with a huge outcry online. And, look, I, I do understand the point that getting back to work does encourage those friendships at work and I think they are really essential yeah. for, you know, your work life. And I think elements of that are really important. But I, I, I think we've all discovered that working from home has a lot of advantages, particularly for women, mm. for people with families. Mm. It means you can get the work done but you can still have some sort of work-life balance in that you're not doing a two-and-a-half-hour commute every day. Uh, you don't have to buy all the clothes that you need for work, You do, all the expensive lunches that you have when you're in when you're just bored and you want to go and do something at lunchtime so you spend a truckload of money on a sandwich that's not worth it so he's saying it's not in your best interest to work at home and he also said I know it's a hassle to come into the office but if you're just sitting in your pajamas in your bedroom is that the work life you want to live and I say to him yes I think sometimes <laughs> that's totally fine and appropriate and he's ad- I call them house pants, but sure, pyjamas works as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I've started wearing them out. Um, he said, I'm getting really frustrated with the inability of people in positions of leadership to explain this effectively to their employees. If we don't feel like we're part of something important, what's the point, he said. If it's just a paycheck, then it's like, what have you reduced your life to? I... I just don't get it. I found this very condescending. Absolutely. Particularly from, from someone who has always worked from coffee shops and home and has said on the record that he hates working in an office. I've got, my, I've got more. It's like you don't even have any experience in this game, dude. In, in this other article from 2005, which was in The Guardian, I refer to my writing as rotating. I always say I'm going to rotate because I have a series series of spots that I rotate. Oh, bloody get off it. There's one on the Lower East Side. The waiters are all Australian and they play the Smiths all day long, which I find so fabulous. Ah! I always go there on weekends. <laughs> then there are restaurants in Little Italy that I go to. I often go to these places in the middle of the afternoon. Then they'll let me linger. Hey, you know what, Malcolm? You know what that sounds like? Sounds like what we were doing when we were working from home. <laughs> if, but we couldn't leave our houses. And it's fine to do all of that. I celebrate it. Yeah. But you can't then turn around and tell us that we've all got to go back to the office. And you can have a purpose without going into an office. I mean, goodness me, I don't go into an office every day. I I got I work mostly from home. You're allowed you're allowed to have a purpose. A building does not give you a purpose. I think that it also distills down that um, idea of that you know you, when you're at home you're alone and when you go to work you're social and there's no other social interactions outside of that. It's very simplistic. Mm. And obviously you, you know some people do need more you know maybe need a bit of encouragement. They're naturally more introverted and they you know could maybe do with some like forced collaboration in, yeah. in some ways. But to assume that everyone is completely devoid of that sort of collaborative friendship mincing with people mm. if they're not going to the office is, again, um, really short-sighted. I love the balance that I've got right now. I work two days from home, mm. although increasingly one day from home, and then the other days I come into work. And I really like that balance because it you know, frankly, I get to spend time with Norman more, mm. which is nice. Absolutely. <laughs> AKA family. But also it does cut down on those things where it's like, okay, well, I can actually go for a jog this morning because I don't Instead have to on the train do for everything else. Yeah, all those other things. And I think that that brings, you know, creates a richer life and a more diverse experience of life than just this really old school way of thinking about work, which we seem to be snapping back to. Mm. this, And it seems to be sort of drawn from a feeling of distrust again from employers of like, if I can't see you and I can't log that you're working, mm. then you're not working. Where I think that it was proved through the pandemic that people were working 
and productivity went up. So I don't know why we keep on going back to these really conservative ideas mm. of where and how we should work. Because there's buildings that need filling. Um, Do you reckon he's like sponsored by some of the, the real estate uh, companies of New York? Yeah, possibly, to, like... actually, because New York was one of the hardest hit and people are probably still reticent to go back to work yeah. in a city like that. And And look, I do understand that... There are a lot of businesses that have struggled because they don't have the same amount of people going into the city centre. But maybe it's it is time for a rethink of how we live mm. in that. Sense. Well, I thought we were doing that, so that's why it's like yeah. frustrating when you see people going. But really, I know you've been doing that, but actually, you should go back here. Well, I just say, step off, Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. Step off with your gazillions and and trillions of dollars and daily daily different coffees at different cafes where they play the Smiths. Yeah, sounds sad actually. Yeah. I know. <laughs> On the um, pandemic tip, though, there has been a rise in mm. naturism yes. apparently through the UK. And I want to thank our bang babe, Caitlin, for bringing this to my attention um, visually and uh, literally mm. through a great article um, in it The Guardian. A, lo- a surprisingly long read about <laughs> nudists. <laughs> well, I want, to, I want to capture the start of it because I think it sort of sets the tone of this piece in The Guardian. It was summer 2021 and Nick Mayhew Smith pressed into the bosky depths of ancient woodland outside Hastings. When he got to the centre, he undressed and perched on an accommodating mossy log. Slowly, he recalls, nature started to quicken around him. It was like a romantic tableau of a nude in the woods, he says, except the naked human subject was carrying a packet of nuts and a sensible backpack. The pandemic had left the 53-year-old London-based guidebook writer run ragged with work and homeschooling, and a naked stroll in a quiet woodland seemed like just the ticket to restore his shattered nerves. And therein lies the drive and the rise, apparently, of naturism or nudists mm. in the UK, which seems to be a big thing. Yeah. I found this fascinating um, because it is interesting the way that certainly from our perspective, Miff, when we were locked down in Melbourne, I've never experienced so much nature. We really, I think it was partially just being stuck inside and having the screens and really being grateful for what we could mm. have. But I've never looked so much into the sky. I've never paid so much attention to the birds, smelt the air and been grateful for all the space mm. around me and particularly being able to access green space more yeah. so than any other time in my life. So this taking it a step further and being at one with nature, being as naked as the birds and the animals around you, yeah. it's really taking it to another level, it's, isn't it? It is taking it to another level, but I can't get the image out of my mind and man nude with a backpack on. Like that's not... <laughs> Uh, that's not that's not naturism. That, that's just not nudism. You can't have a backpack. Like, that's your. That's what you're pulling out of this article. I am because the visual is just wrong. Like, I understand you've got to carry things, but that's why you have jeans with pockets. Like, well, it's a problem with nudism, isn't it? Or naturism, whatever you want to call it. Where do you hold things? Right, exactly. Well, there's there is a special pocket but, for some of us. This is a long article, and I think much like the wild article that we talked about last week, there's lots of different people involved. There's an academic called Annabella Pollen, mm. who is the author of a book called Nudism in a Cold Climate. I want to read that. Yeah. And she talks about um, when naturism first emerged. It was after the First World War and the flu pandemic. There was a huge appetite to find new ways of living, explore new social structures, and to feel free. And maybe this does have a very tenuous but valid link Mm. to what we were just talking about when we're shaken up and gone, okay, something's just happened that's taken away all control of our lives, Mm. that we can't do anything about it, we're locked up, we're 
closed borders. There's so many things that we thought we took for granted and that's all been thrown out the window. What can I control and how do I do things differently? Mm. Let's get the gear off. Yeah, I love that. And but and bodily acceptance too. Maybe that is something you can control by getting nude on a regular basis with others and seeing other people's it's bodies. It's a great equaliser. It is. And and I think the one thing I learned from doing that Spencer Tunic nude photo shoot years and years ago, turn of, at the turn of the century it was mm. in Melbourne. That's how long ago it was. And when I was in a sea of 5,000 bodies... Of all shapes and sizes and and skin tones, we all looked the same. Yeah, like it didn't matter. Yeah. Everyone looks. We look like you know, flesh, a, a, a herd of something. <laughs> yeah, we do, and that was very liberating for a long time. I must say, like mm. I felt very confident, body confident after that for a long time. Now that's gone, so maybe I need to get back into nature. Maybe naturism is your next yeah. step in life yeah. as you go through, you know, your big vibe shift. Maybe naturism um, yeah. at your property, you got a big plot of land. It's a very every possibility a, the neighbours wouldn't see you. I don't have enough tree coverage though, I don't think. <laughs> or should we say bush coverage? <laughs> I'm not sure if I could get away with that. I reckon you could go for a bushwalk. Quite yeah, literally, out where out your way, and, and, and just strip <laughs> off and feel the breeze. I could go for a jump in the river. I mean, but what's the fine line between naturism and indecent exposure? Mm. Like that's where that's what I can't I can't quite get my head around. I don't know what that line is, and and they say it's not about being an exhibitionist, but I I don't know. There's still a little part of me that suspects that there might be an element of that when you're doing it. On your own in the forest. Yeah, maybe you've got to do it in someone... spaces where it's protected, where you're not forcing your naturism on others. Yeah, because then that is actually just quite frightening. Like if a man with a backpack in nude came walking towards me, I, I, because he's got a backpack on, I would assume he's probably okay because <laughs> he's a naturist. But I don't know. It's a bit weird. Your fixation on the backpack is I just too much well, for me. from last week, the ick. Oh yeah, and the that ick. person running okay. to the back. So, and this is like triple <laughs> ick. This is like ick times twenty. Anyway, it's a great piece. It's a strange piece, um, <laughs> but I feel like this is in your future. Yeah, or yours too. Would you do it? Yeah, I do like getting naked. I feel like feeling the sun on my skin and the you know the breeze and sunning and the your cold. yoni. Do you do that one? No, we've talked about that before. I don't uh, sun my yoni. You've never tried it. <laughs> Yonic therapy. <laughs> <laughs> a yonic tan. But I thought it was interesting in the article too that this is very much the domain of an older nudist sort of mm. vibe that they're worried about the next generation because they're not coming up as they thought they would. So it is kind of the more baby boomer generations mm. and maybe it is that kind of sexual revolution that was gone through and holding on to that or revisiting it at a point where, as we know, one of the great blessings of age is that you give less and less of a shit. Mm. You don't care about the things that maybe you were caught up with when you are in your 20s and 30s about yeah. body image and perceptions. It's just, you, you know, you let it all go. Mm. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Maybe we are all destined to be nudists <laughs> post-50. Well, we are once we take our clothes off. We're all nude. That's right, we've got a fashion update and this is an interesting one because instead of dropping new music, Frank Ocean, amazing mm. singer-songwriter, fashion icon, That's right. just great thinker, um, has released an interesting product through his Homer jewellery brand. Mm. He's put out a gold diamond-encrusted cock ring. $25,000 cock ring. Yep, that's right. Beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It's Would a beautiful you judge piece. a naturist if they were wearing a... $25,000 I would say, yes, you're just nude to show that off, actually. 
Um, this it's is called a H-bone ring, in case you're wondering. H-bone. It's a, called an XXXL H-bone ring. Oh, so you can only have it if it's XXXL, <laughs> is that right? You've got to be extra large or well, something? Well, the, the way that they um, advertised it on yeah. the Homer Instagram, the, the image obviously was pixelated because otherwise it would be banned, but... You can see there's girth there. Yes. Through the pixelation. You can see it is an XXXL yeah. model <laughs> modelling the 25K cock ring. That's right. Look, I, I just don't understand this at all and I love it. Like, why? <laughs> there is no need for it. There is no, no one's asking for it. People will buy it. Yeah. Um, imagine that. Uh, yeah, hello, darling. Happy anniversary. I got you something. <laughs> $25,000 cock ring. Yeah, it's a real move, isn't it? It's a real power move. Yeah. It's it's creating a market for where there was none. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I mean, I know people buy them. File under who asked for this. Yeah. I know people buy them and use them, but I don't really – I can't imagine you'd ever spend $25,000 on it. And now he's just going, somebody will. Yeah. And I've done it. Yeah. Well, Drake's already bought a $2 million necklace that he's put out on the same thing. I had to look it up, and it is a chunky-looking diamond mm. necklace, which he wore courtside to a basketball game. So I feel like Drake would buy this. Yes. <laughs> Drake move. Um, but how you'll find out, I can't tell you. There no, you have it. No. What What do you do with them anyway? They just pop them on and... Um, oh, I think it's quite, probably a question for the hookup or another podcast. <laughs> don't know if I want I to get into I that. I genuinely don't know what, what you do with them. What do you do with them? I'm, call me out Caitlin, I don't want Anyone to... Anyone know? <laughs> you just put them on and then it just kind of fills up with... It gets like... No, the blood doesn't move around or I something? I think there's a blood, there's a blood... There's something related to blood flow there. Okay. Why don't you Google cock rings no! and how they work? I think that'll I'm help you out. I'm at the ABC. Out. They'll knock me off the internet <laughs> if I do that. i surprised if we have a podcast after this. <laughs> hey, before we get into the bang on for this week, I just wanted to share a um, an email, as I mentioned, as I forecast in our bang box. We've been asking you if you've got any questions and, you know, some great questions deserve great answers. Uh, like this one from Kylie. Hi, Miff and Zan. A few years ago, I realised that an action I do is not done by anyone else I've mm. ever met. Mm. For context, a few years ago I made up my breakfast crumpets and posted it to social media. Yep. Fury ensued. Oh, gee. Apparently the lovely smooth flat side isn't the side you butter. The lovely engineered for your spread of choice side isn't the right way. <laughs> Who makes these rules is the question that Kylie has. And I am shook. First of all, my partner does crumpets with Vegemite, which I don't understand. No, I'm here for that. Okay, we've had this conversation and Love we've it. got to butter like, and veg. agree to disagree. I'm a honey all the way. Oh, no, no, that's a dessert. But buttering and spreading on the flat side of a crumpet, what do you think all those little holes are for, exactly. Kylie? So- I mean, I don't want to judge everyone no. to, you know, each of their own. That's right. But I do understand now that she's pointed it out, the flat surface is almost perfectly spreadable, even better than toast. Does it soak anything up, exactly. though? Exactly. I, I can't see how it would, but maybe it has like the micro holes so it does soak up a little bit. <laughs> But it's just that's the point of a crumpet is that it soaks up the butter. I feel like everyone has got to get a crumpet this week and butter oh, it on I'm the other side. That's all I want. And right just now. give it a go because maybe it squeezes through, like it soaks in the toppings oh. and then it squeezes through like a little shower head mm. of melted butter and honey or Vegemite onto the lower gullet of your mouth. Oh, I like that. That's good. But I also think the holes underneath would then mean that if you've done excessive butter, which I always do, mm. and I highly recommend, you never scrimp on the butter. In fact, you go overboard yeah. on a crumpet, that that would come through those big gaping holes, whereas if it's up the other way, kind of protects it like a like a kind of little safety pocket so you'd never lose any ounce of butter. Again, I feel like this crumpet talk is relating to everything else yeah. we've talked about today. <laughs> 
safety pocket. Thank you for the uh, question, Kylie. And but you're right, Kylie. Who does make the rules? No Who one. Do what you want. Eat it however you want. Live your life. I love that email from Kylie. Thank you. Thank you for the questions. I don't know if we've answered them, but you're surely going to have us eating Krampus this week. Yeah, I'm off to buy some now. What are you banging on about? Um, oh, I watched. I was going to bang on about a play because I knew it was going to be good because everyone in the world has told me how great it was, A Picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. Second last show was on Saturday. Had tickets, waited months and months. It got cancelled. No, <laughs> no. It's off in New York now, so I have to go to New York to see it. Okay, good, good excuse. Good excuse, yeah. Good great. excuse. Um, no, but I watched uh, the Woodstock 99 documentary mm. that's on Netflix at the moment. It's called Trainwreck. I think there's another Woodstock documentary on there as well. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought you were talking about because there no. is one on Binge, which was put out by HBO, I believe. Yeah. This so this is, is a different this one. This is a three-parter and it's it, – I, I haven't seen the other one, mm. but this is new and it, it it's like watching Hell on Earth take place and how – and watching the organisers who came from the original Woodstock, mm-hmm. uh, 69, and who still had the approach of peace and love and – people coming together on a huge scale, and I'm talking 250,000 people. But the problem is they had it on an an old military airstrip, so it was purely concrete. concrete. Yeah. They had acts like corn and limp biscuit that were obviously going to attract a certain type of person. And whip people up. Yeah, and each night was the, the crowds were just whipped up in so many ways, and by the end it was like being basically – robbed for water, things like water, and in the end the water was unsanitary. It was the most filthy experience anyone had ever seen from what from what I can tell from the footage as well. And by the end it was essentially a riot. Things were burnt, there was explosions, there was awful rapes and sexual assaults, mm. which is kind of glossed over in this documentary and I think that's that's one of the downfalls of it is that it was just it was almost like, oh well that's a given, you know? And they didn't go into a lot of detail uh, and I don't really understand why because that's a huge, huge thing to happen in such a disaster area yeah. Like, um, and a lot of people suffered. It was just horrific. Like it was actually horrific and it's a discussion on greed. It's a discussion on the stories we tell ourselves and the excuses we make for things. These organisers just basically – came up with the excuses as to why. I mean, even talking about the sexual assaults, the organisers, that the, one of the, the original organisers said, well, the, with that amount of people, that would probably happen anyway. Oh, my God. I know. Law like of the, averages. The no. justification for these things was appalling. Music should be a safe space. It should be a safe space. But up until that point, a lot of these things had not been discussed. Mm. And it was interesting to see uh, one of the women who's one of the main talking heads of the documentary said, it's so good now because our our girls don't have to or won't put up with what we put up with, particularly at that festival. Um, it was terrifying. Like I was like, "What? This is carnage." It was like Lord of the Flies. Yeah, and, but it was it was always going to be. You might as well have lit a match and walked away. It was awful. Anyway, so yeah, it, it got a bit got a bit grim and long by the end. I was like, "Oh, please wrap this up. This is horrific." I I would have left day one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting watch from a historical perspective, and to see how far we've come in terms of crowd safety, what's acceptable behaviour and what's not at festivals, how we structure festivals. It's it the, the scene has changed a lot for the good. Yeah. But this was supposed to be the opposite of that. It was supposed to be you know peace and love. It's and, Woodstock. Yeah, and it was a, more like a bacchanalian orgy. You know, it's full on.
At a military base. At a military base. On Surrounded cement by concrete. with no water. What's it called? Uh, Trainwreck, the Woods- Woodstock 99. On Netflix. Mm. All right. Not a fun time. Great. Great recommend then. Yeah, but it's, um, <laughs> but it's definitely very interesting if you're a fan of music. and Yeah. Oh, I love music docos, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, what are you banging on about? Well, I'm actually, funnily enough, banging on about a music film, but it's not a doco. It's what the filmmaker is calling an immersive cinematic experience. And I think we might have talked about this when it was first mentioned because it premiered at Cannes. It is the David Bowie film Moon Age Daydream. Oh, is this the one on the big screen? Yeah. And you get your seat rattles and everything. Um, no, that's a certain cinema that you go to in the suburbs, but okay, that's okay. okay. I thought you'd have, I mean, I could You can imagine. do that if you want. Yeah. But it is very much a film that you should experience in the cinema and it's opening and premiering this week as a part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Oh, are you doing that in conversation? I'm doing it in conversation, full disclosure, the with the director, Brett Great. Morgan, um, who also directed that film Montage of Heck, which was the Kurt Cobain film, which came out in 2017 uh, or 2016. And um, he has game in telling you know musical stories. He's done another doco on the Rolling Stones. But this is totally different. There's no talking heads. There's no you know, interviews with people reflecting on stuff. This is David Bowie sharing his story and quite literally his archives. The family gave Brett Morgan complete access to his archives of more than 5 million things. And David spent the last 30 years of his life recording everything himself but also buying back memorabilia quietly anonymously at auctions so he just amassed this huge personal archive. You know, I love that, that you've been online trying to buy something on eBay and you've got this guy who's just really persistent and his name's David Bryan. <laughs> David Jones. David Jones, 60 whatever year he's born, 54 and he's just really persistent and you never Sniping knew. Sniping you on eBay. <laughs> and you never knew that that was David Bowie. Yeah, he was there. He was just sitting uh, at home on his computer, just waiting, getting in doing there, the countdown, absolutely stealing <laughs> everything you're trying to buy. But what it makes for is this ridiculously amazing film that I got to see a preview of, and I haven't stopped thinking about. Oh, that's beautiful! And it's going to open nationally in a month, mid September, and you should see this at a cinema because it's it is so beautiful, but also the sound of it is incredible. Mm. He's worked with Tony Visconti, Bowie's longtime producer, and gotten all these stems from songs that just swim around in this, what is at times a chaotic film. You feel like you're on acid if you've ever done that. And you're in this kind of brain space of Bowie's where creativity knows no bounds. And even if you have no idea about Bowie or you're just a fair weather fan and you know a few songs, there is something in this for everyone because it's about living your life fully from someone who loved life, loved living and loved the process of creativity. So for him it wasn't, oh, I'm going to get to the end of this album and then release it and that's the payoff. For him it was about everything that goes along the way. He took himself all over the world. Remember, he used to live in Australia. He lived Mm. overseas in LA for a couple of years because he hated it so much he wanted to see what that did for his art. He took himself to uncomfortable places to see what it did for his creativity and that search for that filled his whole life and it was just so inspiring hearing him talk about like what what are you going to do this is this is the time you have how are you going to spend it mm. and we're not going to be david bowie no one is david bowie and you're not necessarily going to be creative in that way but it just made me think so intensely about the time that we spend on earth and how we spend that time because it is mm. so finite 
And it's just beautiful. And there's so much incredible concert footage and all these offcuts. Like, you are going to love this. I remember you hosted a big outside broadcast when the David Bowie Is exhibition came to Melbourne. Mm. It was something that the V&A Museum in the UK, in London, Mm. uh, put on. And then that exhibition travelled to Melbourne. And that was an incredible exploration Mm. of his archives. And I felt like I just learned so much more about Bowie from that. And this film just builds on that. But it's just this wild ride. So Moon Age Daydream, it's gorgeous. If you've got tickets to see it at MIFF this week, enjoy it. Um, Everybody else, make a a date to go and see it at the cinema when it opens in September. Beautiful. It's just beautiful. I loved it so much. Oh, great. I found it so inspiring. Great. You need those films, don't you? You do. Yeah, little sparks. Every little now sparks. And then. Yeah, little sparks from little Davy Jones. Yep. What well, a gift he was. Or as David, uh, David, David Jones underscore underscore fifty four <laughs> nine fifty four at hotmail dot com. <laughs> You're bitter, aren't you? He sniped you one day. He got me. He got me. Ah, <laughs> oh, the best. I'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Bye. Bye. on.